We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome back, everyone, to another edition of the Big Blue Banter Podcast. Obviously, it's a little bit more of an exciting week for me, Nick, everyone involved in following along the New York Giants during the 2018 regular season after they got their season on track with a much-needed win in Houston over the Texans. Very desperate game, and let's be honest, the offense played some incredible football for the first half of the game. We'll talk about why things bogged down in the second half. We're going to talk about a lot of things on this podcast. There is a ton to unpack. But before we do that, I'm going to throw it over to Nick. How are you doing today on this Wednesday afternoon, Nick? Doing uh, doing really well. Psych, we're doing it a day early. A lot of jam-packed Giants football in the last 36 hours or so. <laughs> and so it's been good. Good to finally talk about it. I feel like I've prepped for it for a long enough time here. So you know, yeah. ready, ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> no doubt about that. And let's, and let's, let's say this right now. We – expected the all 22 game tape to be released kind of closer to Wednesday or Wednesday evening, but it looks like the NFL has decided to kind of up that this year uh, to, to up, up their product a bit. And they're dropping it Tuesday. Now, actually I saw, I saw it come lot. I was watching the broadcast version of the game for something on Monday night, like really late at like 1am. And I clicked at the top right corner and saw the coaches film was there. So I got a head start on that. This week. I think they actually put it up like right away. Uh, on Tuesday morning, uh, Monday evening, Tuesday morning, right between that time. So we got a good head jump, a head start on that this week. Um, I've rewatched this game now twice on the All-22 just because I was doing a couple different things for 24-7 sports that you guys can check out there. I broke down all the third down plays, and I looked into some of the potential low hits that um, – we may we may debate uh, later on the show from the Texans if they were you know cheap shots or not, but we're gonna start this bad boy off the way we've started off the last two podcasts because 
it's a very heated topic and it will remain one I've learned after what happened this week and still some some doubters. Uh, and that's Eli Manning. And we're going to start with a breakdown of his performance. So Manning went 25 of 29, had four passes that weren't completed out of 29 attempts. Uh, one was a deep ball to Cody Latimer that he just overshot. Um, the other ones, uh, one was a ball he threw a little bit early, I guess, to Odell Beckham. But in, in reality, it was really just J.J. Watt. This is the third down I'll go over. It was really just a good pressure by J.J. Watt. Um, and then a couple others that I'm, I'm blanking on at this time. Do you remember the other two by any chance, Nick, just watching it so much? No, not offhand. So, no, no, no worries. The point is 25 of 29, 297 yards passing, a 10.2 yards per attempt average, which to me is a really important indicator of quarterback success. It's one of the reasons I've been so down on Derek Carr for the past three, two or three seasons, I guess, whenever the hype started there. Um, and that was a yards per attempt average that has only happened in seven seven times so far through the first uh, I don't know forty eight games of the season with you know ninety six I guess it's ninety six quarterbacks going off so that to me was extremely impressive. I'm going to get into my evaluation of his play after this, but first I want to throw it to Nick. Nick, what did you think uh, after watching the tape about Eli Manning? I think he uh, definitely hit some of the points that I and a few others had kind of criticized him on the previous week. Uh, specifically with his ability to, to diagnose the defense after the snap. Um, that was just spot on in, in cases like where he's seeing cover two and he's looking to hit the turkey hole, which is his spot between the safety and the corner towards the corner, towards the sideline. And he's looking, he's aggressively looking to make that throw. You know, I think it really elevated overall his play speed uh, where he was only late. I mean, like, hand, like not even a handful, like a couple of times, maybe. Um, and so his, and his placement, which is usually very good, was 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 really good this game. And uh, yeah, just a, 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 an interesting an interesting performance because in the wake of a you know he's a he's a you know he's a 37 year old real professional in the wake of an, of a subpar performance in my opinion he comes right back with a very strong performance against a defense that you know again the pockets were not clean you know it wasn't it wasn't it was not a very uh, straightforward game it was a tough battle and he really played well and he delivered it on key times especially in that fourth quarter drive that was huge to come back from that where you know in the third quarter fourth quarter they kind of they they faltered a bit um and you know for reasons i just think of just you know, the other the defense being competitive uh it's just but overall much much different uh and much more decisive and and ready to to see it and send it yeah, I mean, I thought I saw the same thing. To me, the fact that there was still some nitpicking um, of Eli Manning's game on Giants Twitter, and I know probably most of the people who did who are responsible for that aren't listening to this podcast, but it's still going on, just proves to me one thing, that no matter what he does this season, people are going to come after him. Um, obviously, there was the second and nine play, which was which was in the Giants' first touchdown drive, really an incredible play call by Pat Shermer. Nick actually went over this. Um, this was the play right after the Giants ran in, from 12 personnel right into the into the boundary, correct? Yes, correct. Yeah, the uh, the the very following play, um, actually, Baldy had it in his Baldy breakdowns. And uh, do you want me to go into that now, or do we uh... just give a quick wrap up? Because I just want to go go ahead and make my point real quick on Eli there. Yeah, yeah, sure. Oh, yeah, um, uh, yeah. So for what it really was is Baldy kind of points out that the safety was nosy there, and what he kind of missed was that they. Uh, Shermer and coaches like to run things, and when we see running plays that kind of don't go anywhere, they, they look like kind of like a failure to to a lot of fans and to me at first. But then I noticed again when he comes right back with the same play in the opening script, the second and nine that we're talking about, uh, where he runs play action boot, and it's basically a sale concept where uh, Sterling Shepard is coming across the field into a vacated area where no one really is. And what Baldy and a lot of the guys in the breakdown didn't point out is because 
the Giants had the bona fide threat to run, and because they were running overloaded tight ends to one side into the boundary, meaning very close to the field on the short side of the field, that boundary safety became part of the run fit. And Pat Shermer knows this; it's kind of basic football, but uh, that that's what opened up the the vacated hole for for the throw. It's just very very kind of savvy things that it all of a sudden made me realize the frequency at which you see this. He's watching and seeing what the defense does to everything. Yeah, and that's just an example of a, of a very very good play call by Pat Shermer because, like you said, he's doing what we talked about on previous podcasts. We see from a lot of offensive play callers around the NFL setting up a big play with a play before it. But the point I wanted to make on that is that after that play, as Eli Manning's rolling to his right on a bootleg play action pass, he makes a throw to Sterling Shepard, and you hear people saying, this was a bad play. He should have threw the ball to Odell Beckham Jr. It would have been a touchdown. Yes, Odell Beckham Jr. is streaking up the right sideline. That would have been a touchdown if he can accurately throw that ball. But how many quarterbacks do these people – I just – I find it so unbelievable they think that Quarterbacks on the run, on the roll, can flick a ball in stride about 35 yards down the field and hit Odell Beckham Jr. I think Patrick Mahomes can probably do it. I think Aaron Rodgers can probably do it. I don't know too many other quarterbacks who are going to do that. Um, that's just my evaluation of what I've seen around the NFL. I just, I'm sure as hell Deshaun Watson was going to do that, and he can move out of the pocket well. So to me, I thought this was an A-plus performance by Eli Manning. I don't think it can get much better than this. Yeah, he could hit that Latimer throw next time down the left sideline, but that, that's about it for me. Um, and really, I think the biggest difference in this game for the Giants and Texans, and you can tell me if you don't agree with this, Nick, because – might be a bold call. I haven't, I haven't tweeted about it or anything. But I think the biggest difference in this game was the mental processing of Eli Manning versus the mental processing of Deshaun Watson. And I think that was the X factor in this game. That is the reason to me why the Giants won this game. Manning processed these, this defense fast, early and often on almost all of his pass plays. He got rid of the football in the right spots on time. Not every pass was pinpoint accuracy. Not every pass led the receiver so he could have a ton of yards after the catch. But every ball got there. There were no missed passes except obviously for that Latimer one. And I guess if you want to call that uh, Odell Beckham one, uh, you know, early in the first half, one of their first third down misses. But to me, that was the biggest difference in this one, Nick. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good point. We're going to hit more of the Watson side of things in, in the later part. Uh, but, yeah, for sure, it's, it's, a, it's a stark contrast and it's something that – you know, I think I think the, the critical those that are criti- critical of Eli Manning can kind of hold him to this higher standard because they he, they're going to need him to play this way to win with the structure of the line as it currently is, even with the improved play this week. It's just it's just the nature of the beast, and that's great. That's why you have this guy, right? <laughs> that's the that's kind of the point why why you want a veteran quarterback back there like this. And will he be perfect? No, but the play needs to be elevated around this area for the rest of the season for sure. Exactly. And that actually helps me transition to the next thing I want us to talk about here, Nick. And that's the play calling overall and the play design overall. Obviously, last week, we were pretty critical of Pat Shermer for some of the ice, you know, the overflow of isolation routes we saw against the Dallas Cowboys. And then just generally, you know, at least for me, I thought he, he didn't he didn't stick with the run as much as he should have early on. Barkley, I think, only touched the ball twice in the first 25 plays against the Dallas Cowboys uh, in the run game. So, This week, I thought it was night and day, and that's really a really good sign moving forward, not only for the 2018 season for me, but going forward with Pat Shermer as the head coach of the New York Football Giants because he did what good coaches do. He adjusted. He didn't do the McAdoo plan of let's put the same thing out there and ask our players to execute better. No, he changed the game plan. He got Eli Manning rolling on the move, uh, throwing on the move, I'm sorry, with a lot of bootlegs, some naked bootlegs, plays designed for him to throw on the run, uh, a commitment to the run game early on. And this 
this was a lot of what we saw, in my opinion. It looked a lot like what we saw in that first half of the third preseason game against the Jets. Well, the Giants' offense was really rolling. Obviously, they didn't convert uh, all their drives into touchdowns, and that was an issue again today. Uh, I'm sorry, versus the Texans. But to me, it was a massive step forward for the play calling. I thought his play design was unbelievable throughout. And I think after after I, I throw this to you, I do want to go over a couple plays, and I think we can dive into those. But I just want to get your general opinion first on Pat Shermer's play calling and play design in this Texans game. Yeah, definitely a better effort and an effort where, you know, the unit looked more gelled. And what I kind of mean by that more is the quarterback and the play caller looked to be on the same speed, hence our talk about the play speed, but specifically in the design. Uh, the other thing I noted, too, is some guys were mentioning that Eli, in the post-game comments I made, I can't remember the exact quote or who said it or who, who, who I heard it through on Twitter, uh, that, you know, Eli was maybe kind of thrown a veiled comment about the, how the play calling was was a little more simplistic and easier for him to handle or and and basically the the the, the tweet didn't know what it would be and one idea i might have is that i definitely saw a, le- a smaller wider or a, a lesser range of plays this this week i think he saw a bunch of plays twice in terms of the passing game so i think overall i thought, i'll bet you the play sheet was maybe about two-thirds to three-quarters of the size that it was for the previous two games yeah, and that's exactly right. I mean, they've all said, they all pretty much said they simplified it a little bit, which is definitely something we like to see. And I want to take this time now, Nick, to dive into that. Maybe we can start doing this moving forward, at least after some of the wins um, or all the wins. I want to dive into your favorite plays, favorite play calls, play design, just overall play, but with a focus on the on the play call and the design from both the offense and the defensive side of the ball. And then I'll, and then I'll throw in mine. Uh, I love Mesh. <laughs> like I'm, a, I think mesh, the mesh concept. And is there a play you saw? You saw it executed uh, as well as possible. Yeah. So he had two that were awesome. The biggest one I thought was the third and three uh, at the in the second quarter, right before the Red Ellison touchdown. This is the throw to Odell Beckham. And I've seen a few people break this play down on Twitter and kind of not know what mesh is. It looks like a, a slot screen almost, or basically like a pick play, which it really is. Um, but yeah, he's got Odell Beckham in the inside slot and he's running a mesh concept. So Odell's running a shallow cross and the opposite wide receiver, one of the two opposite wide receivers is running a shallow cross too. What I really thought was cool about this, uh, just to get into it, man, the way Manning read this shows me that he totally is understanding what's going on within the offense. Um, initially before the play, um, Beckham had motion over to the left and the wire and the defensive back had followed him. That signify that symbol that, that tips off man coverage, but it doesn't always guarantee man coverage. And what Manning does, which is really cool, and I broke this out on my uh, on my piece for Cover One, he checks the f- opposite side flat first before coming to uh, Odell Beckham running the, the crossing route. So basically, he's checking where Beckham's going to make sure that those defenders are in zone, and it's not a split field coverage or a mixed coverage or any type of basically you know like foolery. And, and so it just confirms that his, that his best wide receiver is going to get the play in space, and it goes for 30, gets the first down, and then the next play he's thrown to Ellison for the touchdown, which is a real big part of the game for me. Love that, Nick. Love that breakdown. That's something I honestly did not notice until you just broke it down. That's something I just learned that, I, that you know, Eli Manning checked off, looked on the right, saw the co- different coverages there, the coverages, and really took advantage of the play. And when you watch that play break down, you see Texan safety kind of jump up to take away the short route, the short route of the back of the Saquon Park, because it is third and three on this play. Um, after, you know, before that, he motions, Eli motions Beckham to the other side of the field, and, and the defender follows with him, showing man coverage on Beckham. It's just really an incredibly designed play, in my opinion, all around to not only get Beckham the first down in the middle of the field for an easy catch, but also a lot of space to run after the catch there. 
Um, did you have a favorite play you wanted to break down from the defensive side of the ball? Uh, uh, let's stick with the offense for now. I, that, actually, I don't think – yeah, I don't think – Offhand, I don't. Yeah, I not necessarily. <laughs> you you well, go. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, it's all good. I'm going to do both because I, we're going to do most of the defense later on. But I, these two plays just really stood out to me. Um, and the first play that I that I got that really stood out to me on the offensive side of the ball, you actually picked it, Nick, and we didn't we didn't go over this before the podcast. So I'm going to have to go a little bit on the flyers. They did have a lot of good play calls on the offensive side of the ball that I liked. Another one, I mean. That, re- that I really liked was actually a play that was called back to by penalty. It was called for a solder penalty. Uh, it was called for holding down the field. I don't exactly know if it was holding. To me, I, it's really hard to see from the All-22. Even when I, I, I chromecasted it to, to a 65-inch television, I really couldn't see the hole, but maybe it is. Um, the, the ref also seemed to throw this flag really late. Uh, it was like a few seconds after the alleged hold. Um, but anyway, the play was a play action, uh, play action, or I'm sorry, it was a play action pass where the Giants got the, the entire defense flowing to the right before Eli turned around and immediately threw it back on a screen to Odell Beckham where, where he had Solder and another blocker coming out ahead of him. Beckham took the play for 15 yards. Obviously, the holding was called. It was going to be first and 10 on the Giants' 40. Um, this was a key play in the third quarter, through the third or fourth quarter just before uh, just before another punt. Instead, it turned to the first and 15. The Giants were sacked on the next play, second or second and 25, and that, that play turned into a punt. And, and it was first and 15 from their own 10. So it's really a big game-changing moment. These are the little types of penalties that have kind of killed the Giants' offense for the first three games. And once they get these cleaned up, I think it's going to be – you're going to see a lot more success uh, in both halves from the Giants' offense. But that was just a really interesting play. Um, for me uh, that I saw on the offensive side of the ball. And similar to similar to that was the play-action pass, that uh, play that Evan Ingram actually got injured on. I love that one where Ingram looks to block down and then kind of just bounces out and Eli runs a naked boot and just tosses it to him. I mean, when you can get that matchup with Evan Ingram at a 4-4-1 speed in space, essentially nobody but green grass on the sideline in front of him, that's something you got to take advantage of every time, and that's exactly what Pat Shermer and Eli Manning did on that play. Um, but on the defensive side of the ball, there was actually a play that I really loved that stood out to me. So it was a third and nine in the second quarter. Texans had the football, and it was right after um, they had a five-yard false start penalty. And actually, this play resulted in a redo of the down um, for offsetting penalties, uh, which I'll go over in a second. It was really ticky-tacky. Um and the Texans eventually converted this and would drive down uh, after that. But, but the, or I'm sorry, they would eventually punt, but they, they converted this play, sorry. And the play was awesome to me because it was third and nine. And what I liked most about this was that Betcher had both Ogletree and Ray Ray Armstrong at the line of scrimmage at the snap. So those were the two nickel, those were the two linebackers in the play. They were in nickel, the Giants. And then right before the snap, uh, you saw both Armstrong and Ogletree. Run, run backwards, run out. Oh, uh, Armstrong flooded the flats, flooded the flat uh, zone near where uh, DeAndre Hopkins was running his route, completely taking away Watson's first read. You see Watson look there, wants to go to uh, to Hopkins to convert that third down, doesn't have it. Ogletree runs the other direction, and the by by that time the Giants have two high safeties, so there's not much he can do on the left side of the field. And the pass rush gets there. Watson's flushed out of the pocket. Armstrong eventually collapses on the play. It was a dead play. He didn't really need to touch Watson. Watson's going to be throwing it out of bounds or getting sacked. Um, but, of course, they, they called it a, uh, I guess, a, I don't know, an unnecessary roughness. Literally, Armstrong just tapped Watson on the helmet. 
but that was considered, you know, you can't touch the helmet no matter what. But that to me was just an awesome play design. I loved it with those two linebackers at the line of scrimmage. We kept, we kept hearing about that all offseason. You know, Betrick was going to have all these guys at the line of scrimmage. I'm not going to know where the pressure is coming from. And then we kind of saw it. And I just loved the decision to kind of flood the zone where DeAndre Hopkins was. There were a lot of coverages I really liked from Betcher, and we'll get more into that later, where he really tried to take away DeAndre Hopkins, which I think is the total right play against the Texans offense. But we'll get into that later. Um, before before we got into that, I wanted to know what was your thoughts in general on the third down play calling. The Giants went 7 of 13 on third downs. I think this was a really key reason why they were able to win this game. Yeah, yeah I, think I think they're all much better. Um, uh, let me just look here and look at what it, what that last play was. Yeah, no, overall, uh, yeah, overall much better. Overall seeing, um, you know, the final drive, I really liked the ability on the third and two, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this later, but the play to Barkley was just go to empty set. They were very willing to go to empty set, and guys have been breaking those stats out. And so it just puts a little bit more risk on the line, but he had faith in the line and a great completion to Barkley there for that key third and two. Just an ability to make your – or a willingness by the head coach to make to let his players make plays. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't to, to me what I love most about the play calling on third downs, and I actually broke it down on 24-7. If you guys want to check it out, I've got every play there broken down on 24-7 Sports Giants. But you look at it, they missed six third downs, right? One was the the just the just uh, just overthrow to um, to I'm sorry to to Cody Latimer along the left sideline. Two were run plays. One was the third and 11 that me and you went over, Nick, where they ran Gallman. That was really – people really criticized uh, – criticized Shermer there for what they can deem to be like a, basically a um, what they deem to be a, a conservative play call. But if you really look at that play, and I know we went over this on, in DMs earlier this week, Nick, because we were I wasn't exactly sure about it. Because Hernandez, if you really look at that play, it was third third and eleven in the in the third quarter, and it's a run for eight yards with Gallman. Um, they just miss it, and there is a huge hole right up the middle. Uh, for Goldman. I think Barkley is going to get there. He's going to get through that hole. Um, but I also think that, you know, I, there could be a better block by Hernandez. What Did you think that was a play that they could have, that they kind of wish they could have had back? Yeah, I think it basically was, it was an attempted, um, if it was a pre or post snap RPO, it was, a, it, um, I'm not sure which, it was hard to tell. Uh, they were basically trying to get the defense all on one side of the field and then, and then leak their running back out on the to inside zone to the weak side. So I don't know if they want I maybe they want to have it back, I understood. I understand why they ran it because they ran it for the almost the exact same play for success with Barkley earlier in the game. I guess the question, like you said, is the personnel. Like, you know, can Gallman make that play? I don't know for a full eleven at a key point in the game, um, or are you running it because you're willing to go for it on a fourth down, <laughs> which clearly they weren't. So I, I'm not. I guess you could maybe say they have it back, but I didn't hate it as much as I originally did uh, watching the All Twenty Two. Like I said, seeing that they tried the same look earlier in the game and and were successful on an earlier down. Uh, so so ready for that. Yeah, and I'm never going to really hate the time when the Giants decide to run the ball with six blockers against five defenders in the box. I think that, you know, that's a play that can work and catch a defense by surprise, and then you're you're getting a free first down. And let's be honest, guys, the Giants weren't getting that many first downs. They haven't gotten too many first downs this season in third and long, and that was a third and 11. So that was one of the misses. Three were ruined by quick J.J. Watt pressures. Um, I'm just going to chalk that up to him being – still being one of the best defensive players in football. I don't care what anybody says after watching that game tape. Um, he actually is pro football focuses, number one ranked edge defender overall. So those were, that's four misses there. One was a surprise nickel blitz by the Texans, which I think they did a really good job on, on the play. JJ Watt beat Wheeler again. Um, and 
Eli was looking to step up and through the pressure, but the, the Texans had a delayed blitz from the nickel, and there was nowhere to step, and he took the sack. And then one other play besides the Latimer overthrow was a third and 25, which I'm kind of ruling out. So really, besides that, they had seven makes, three completions to Shepard, two to Odell Beckham Jr., one to Latimer, and then the one Nick just talked about to Saquon Barkley. So to me, they were extremely efficient, and there's still room to grow there on the third downs. Um, is there anything else you wanted to touch on maybe with the offense, something about the 12 personnel or maybe kind of more of what we saw with Eli Manning on the run and the bootleg passing? Yeah, I think the, I think the one part of the on the bootleg um, is that there's a big assumption out there that he doesn't throw that well on the run in terms of squaring his shoulders, uh, in terms of being accurate, in terms of getting that drive foot, that plant foot uh, in the right direction. And I think he showed that that's not the case at all. I think it is, maybe not the best strategy when you have ends that are more athletic and not crashing as much as JJ Watt was crashing. What I'm so what I mean by that is I think, I think he had room to bootleg because the defensive ends were being washed down to the inside part of the play. So is he going to do this every week? I don't think so because you don't want to, to require that he beat a defensive end to make the throw. But what I'm saying is when it's there, let the guy do it. Let the guy run, let the guy move, let, move the pocket. It's going to help your pass protection immensely. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I, 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 I really like that part of the game. And I think I, when they can do it, they absolutely will. I think you just brought up a great point right there, Nick, too, because just you saying that alone, you know, they might not do this every week, but they did it in this game plan specific, in this specific game plan makes a lot of sense. And it really shows me that Shermer is onto something and he knows what he's doing as a head coach and an offensive designer and schemer and play caller, because this is a matchup where it worked, where it was a good decision for the Giants to have Eli on the run. And when he was asked about things he'll do moving forward, he didn't mention he'll always have Eli on the run every game. He said, the two things I'm going to guarantee you are we're going to have Odell Beckham Jr. in the slot, which is something we saw a lot more of. There were there were a couple. There was one uh, early third down conversion that was an easy one. Gimme within the slot. He said we're going to have Saquon Barkley lined up as a wide receiver. Those are two things we're going to look to do more of going forward. So overall, I was extremely impressed with how the offense played in this game. Um, is there anything else you wanted to touch on before we dive into the defense? No, let's hit the defense. All good. All right, let's hit the defense. Is right. So. So I think for me, the most interesting thing we'll, we'll talk about first is kind of just a schematic development that I, that I saw and that, you know, hasn't really been touched on too much on Twitter yet. I know you went into it, which was awesome. But the Giants really did not blitz very often in this game. I mean, when you looked at it, they found a way to confuse Deshaun Watson. Um, a couple, they, You know, they had the early second and four. In the first drive, they had a or second drive for Texans. They had a second and four safety blitz from Michael Thomas that Watson had no clue it was coming and he threw an incomplete pass. Um, there were a couple, few other plays like that, but I mean, overall, I didn't see the Giants blitz that much. A lot of blitz that much. I'm sorry. A lot of these plays had four pass rushers. That's something you noticed as well, Nick. Yeah, they, uh, they, it's, it's something that it was hard to see with the, the broadcast view. So I, there was kind of a narrative going around that when the third and fourth quarter came around that Betcher basically it was playing a prevent defense or playing a softer, play, a lot more softer zone in the secondary. And quite frankly, that was not the case. He was really mixing, like Dan saying, cover two, cover three, cover four all game. Um, and, you know, he had the one zone blitzes, as Dan pointed out, on that second and four. Besides that, I didn't tag any anything more than than rushing four, which is, you know, you're talking about the Giants were easily the top three uh, blitzing unit, uh, defensive unit in the league. So why did he do that? And it gets back into points that we brought up uh, on our last podcast. And, you know, uh, basically it's, it's two things. It's Watson not being able to process what he's seeing on the secondary or basically being hesitant to, to fire, to fire away. It's, it's his, actually his wide receivers didn't do a great, didn't do an 
amazing job of getting separation, uh, even against the zone. The throw that changed it, I think, a little bit for him mentally was on the um, right before the half. He threw a four verts uh, big deep play to his tight end. I can't remember the guy's name, but Ogletree couldn't carry the vertical route. So the three so in the four verts against cover three, one of them was open. It was Ogletree's basically his man. Uh, it was a cover three match that they were playing. And uh, so anyway, the, um, like that was like the first wow throw for me where it's like, okay, he's starting to open up again. That changed by the end of the third quarter into the fourth quarter where you saw him rotating more or, or hitting more guys in against this, against the zone. But it was not because Betcher changed. It was basically because Betcher set it up. So he was challenging um, uh, Watson to be able to hit the throw. And it's almost like when you face a, uh, in baseball, when you face a, a pitcher that can't locate the strike zone, you really want to let let him throw a couple strikes. You'll take two strikes because the guys walked the last three batters. And quite frankly, Watson has not played well in the first two games, in, in, in specifically here, um, where it's taken a while to get going in the first two games. So in this third game, it was very similar to that. Um, and then the other point that, that really why I thought he did this was because he was able to get pressure against the tackles without having to blitz. Everybody, Barwin, Carter had a great sack with a great hand move. Like exactly what we talked about, how Davenport's use of the right tackle's use of hands was really kind of weak. Um, you know, he was able to get that, and that that condensed the pocket was able to basically throw Watson into, into tunnel vision a little bit. It was better than it was in the previous games, but he was, they were able to contain him for the, for the vast majority of the game. Yeah, and I mean, if you really look at some of these defensive breakdowns, a lot of these plays were just broken plays that, you know, coverage was really good on script. And then the the receiver, you know, bounced back, went the other way, uh, which was not, you know, not part of the route, kind of improvised. There were a lot of plays I saw uh, the Giants give up where the receiver improvised. Couple with Will Fuller, there was one play um, in the on third and three in, in the first drive of the, te- of, the fir- of the third quarter for the Houston Texans on third and three, uh, you know, contain was lost at, and Watson broke the pocket and, you know, he was able to find uh, Ray, or, I'm sorry, this was a little bit early, uh, before that. He was able to find uh, Lamar Miller on a broken play where Ray Ray Armstrong was the guy lost in space. And really you can't totally blame it on Armstrong because Watson did a really good job getting outside of the pocket on that play and throwing on the run. And I thought he did that well all game. And while I don't think better, you know, uh, you know, fell into some kind of prevent defense. There were a few plays that were that were interesting to me, Nick. I don't know if you remember this one, but there was a third and eight for the Texans from their own 47. It was their third drive of the third quarter, I believe. There's 455 on the clock. And I just wasn't sure why Janoris Jenkins was playing at the depth he was playing on that play. I, I probably should have threw this one out to you earlier in the DMs, but it was it, it was it was a, it was a play that was confusing to me because Jenkins was playing well behind the sticks, and it really turned out to be a really easy uh, pitch and catch for 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 Watson to Jenkins. Uh, I'm sorry, Watson to Hopkins for the first down, and, and so there were definitely some interesting things I thought about the, the zone coverages the Giants are playing. I didn't think that you know, but maybe part of that is that they wanted to you know account for the fact that they have PW Webb on the field for hundred percent of the snaps. And, you know, you don't want to put him in too many one-on-one situations. Do you think that could have played a role? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think on that play you mentioned, I actually had that, that was a question mark for me just in terms of what the coverage was. I believe it was cover one. I believe it was man. And I believe he was giving him space for the man that he was locked up. The guys do that to Hopkins a lot. They'll give him huge cushions. But like you said, on third and eight, why the big cushion? I think it, 
I don't think they expected him. They basically what happens, the wide receiver wrote, um, ran a drive concept. So he crosses the field right. and the quarterback has an easy pitch and catch. And so, but I, I had a question of whether that was man or whether he was matching, he was trying to pattern match what was going on, or if he expected um, the safety to basically be playing some sort of a three robber where he's lower in a robber position, able to basically take the head off the wide receiver as he's coming across. Uh, so not sure, but a good question where could have been a busted coverage or it could have been something where it was just, you know, he wanted that big cushion because he was afraid of, 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 of him going deep on him. Yep. I mean, and, and that's something they'll work on as, as they move forward and hopefully as they get uh, some of the players back. Um, and so I wanted to dive into a few other things on the defense, Nick, and I know you want to talk about them too. We, we can't go too long <laughs> without talking about the defense and not talking about Kerry Wynn. Um, what a dominant performance uh, by Kerry Wynn. Before this was pretty much preseason and special teams hero. Um, now he might be emerging as something else. He played a season high 40 snaps, I believe. He had five solo tackles, a tackle for loss, six total tackles, a batted pass at the line of scrimmage, and four hurries. I thought he was all over the field on, on the All-22 tape, making incredible plays. There is a play no one's talking about because why would you? He made so many other plays where Watson is, is driving and he's in the Giants' red zone. He breaks uh, free. He's scrambling for a first down on a third and eight. And Wynn moves back and tackles him for six yards, and the Texans have to take a field goal. There's the play where he forces the fumble. There's a play in the red zone early on the Texans' first drive where he has to tackle for a loss and just beats the guy to the edge to, to stop the run, which would have been a touchdown, I think, otherwise. He was all over the field all game. He was easily the best defensive player on the field for the New York Giants. Who would have thought that was coming? If you can get this guy back, and he's you know he's playing a little bit more inside now because the Giants a lot like to put an end uh, to the right of him. If you can get this guy playing at this kind of level with Vernon fully healthy and back alongside him, that to me has a chance to be really, really, really good for the Giants moving forward and a really big factor in helping this defense get to the next level. What did you think of Win performance? I think uh, again I can't jump in Betcher's head, and I haven't seen the PFF data for where he lined up. But I think the threat of zone read made him put win on the outside more of this game and overall bumped his snaps. And to your point, I think when you see him have 40 snaps and the guy gets in the rhythm of the game and the guy with whose biggest trait is a high motor gets in the rhythm of the game, he can he can take over. On top of the high motor, and just to add to what you said, his play strength is improving. I can't say it more. He had like adequate to solid play strength earlier in the preseason. And it was something I mentioned a piece for cover one. It's like, you know, I projected that I think he could have a big impact, but I said, Hey, probably be a, a nickel sub package three technique defensive tackle, which means it's what Dan's saying that where he'll play inside and kind of be a pass rushing specialist, but he needed to fix these or improve on these parts of the game to be basically a three down player. And what you're seeing is inside outside. He's, gaining ground in pass against guys in pass protection or against the run. And it makes a big difference when you get a, a guy who's only, he's only what, 275 or 280, right? I mean, maybe a little smaller and, and he's getting penetration against larger size bodies. It, 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 it made, it reminded me of watching Kareem Hunt on, or sorry, Kareem Martin, excuse me, uh, the, or the Giants defensive end. And he's bigger than Wynn is. And so it's level and it, they, Need it, you know. Without Vernon, they absolutely need that other versatile piece on the line that can do all those things. Yeah, no doubt. And I think at this point, Nick, and I know you might agree with me on this. Um, moving forward, it's going to be tough to have Kerry Win as just a situational, game-specific type of forty snap kind of guy. I think this guy needs to be a part of the defense moving forward. Would you agree with that? 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think you got to get Carter his select snaps and you got to rotate Barwin. And I I would not, I know people want to love to kind of get on Barwin, but he had a nice spin move in this game. He yeah. doesn't, he, he doesn't, he doesn't flash in the stat column, but you know, on tape, he's there and he's yeah. very good against the run. So got to get him in there too. So it, it's a split for sure. Completely agree. And you are hundred percent right about that. There were some underrated plays by Connor Barwin. He loves that spin move, doesn't he? <laughs> he does. He loves to go to Dixie. That spin back move to, to, to rush the pass there, that is a that is a staple for Connor Barwin. And you're right. It's going to be tough. I mean, the Giants are doing exactly what they said we're, they're going to do, so we shouldn't be too surprised. Dave Gettleman said, look, I watched that Philadelphia Eagles Super Bowl team. I watched how they made that run. They used a heavy defensive line rotation, and that's what we're going to do. And he got at, he went out and he got the pieces. Go back and listen to our first Big Blue Panther podcast. I said – what I'm most excited about is this Giants defensive line. They have so many guys to rotate in, and that's exactly what they're doing. I mean, guys like B.J. Hill and Lorenzo Carter, who I want to get to next, they had awesome games on a per-snap basis, but they didn't play that much. Lorenzo Carter played 21 snaps. That's it. B.J. Hill somehow only played 14 snaps, which to me is, is actually something I want to talk to you about. That's very surprising to me. His snap count has gone down, actually, each week. Um, but I'm one of those 14 snaps – you saw the play where B.J. Hill completely bull rushed and bowled over the Texans' left tackle, put him on the ground, and then converted the play into a sack by taking down Deshaun Watson. That was an awesome freaking play by B.J. Hill. And Carter also had his sack, which I want to talk to you about and have you break down, but also had another play later in the game where he had a similar move, looped around the edge, worked back to Watson, and his early pressure forced Watson to break structure and then get out of the pocket and – you know, that prevented him from seeing the open receiver. And there were there was one open receiver on the play of Watson had a few more seconds in the pocket there just to, you know, keep his eyes downfield. It, it forced him to break it, you know, break his eyes up from uh, you know, from keeping them upfield. So for the last year know exactly how he's gonna want to do it. He's an early cutback runner, you know, he's very elusive, he's very like I said, shifty. It's very hard to get a square hit on him out of the backfield. Um, many people like to criticize their offense as being like dink and dunk or, you know, kind of like just taking the short stuff, the constant check downs. What they're not seeing is when you look at the play design, when they're sending um, a lot of vertical routes, all those vertical routes are basically clear out concepts. So looking to take the defenders in manners zone, get them out of the way and then get Camara basically the ball in space, like five yards down the field and some sort of check down. So they do that a lot. Uh, with basically RB with running back choice routes, with running back um, curl routes, they love this curl route thing to, the, to one side that allows Breeze an escape angle too uh, to get to get him the ball. Uh, so yeah, it's going to put a lot of pressure on Giants tacklers across the board. I think the best way to do it is basically to to be in cover three and cover four and a little bit of cover two and and kind of go that way with it. And the Giants play a lot of match coverage, basically meaning they're they're matching the pattern, matching what they're doing, so it's a little bit more evolved. Um, it gets into basically a zone man uh, blend, and so I think they're going to do a lot of that because it's he's he he's like their number two part of their passing game. Wide receiver Michael Thomas is number one. What is interesting about their passing attack is outside of that, it's not to knock anyone else on the team. They're they they have they have trouble getting separation outside of those two players. So the Giants have two bogeys in my mind that they have to take away, and um and so it's just a little different than having a threat of four or five. Uh, you know, when you look at the more complete teams, uh, complete offensive teams in the league. Um, and all this obviously depends if, you know, if you can find a way to get debris, which is very hard to do. But anyway, getting back to Kamara, um, you know, I think it's a guy that that definitely is is the is the most dangerous. Um, and they're definitely going to run him on post wheel, kind of trying to get you know, when the Giants run man, they're going to try to time it on post wheel type concepts where you get Kamara going downfield as well. So definitely something to watch. Yeah. And just on that note, Nick, 
Um, what else should the Giants be worried about when the Saints are on offense? I think, number one, you got to say Breeze is, what, 39 or 40, and he looks almost more accurate than he did at the end of last year. Uh, last game was almost his worst game, and it was the running game's worst game in terms of it was a little stale. So, the, But the biggest thing to worry about is, number one, it's very difficult to get to Breeze. Their pass protection is much better than it was last year. Number two, it's it's – Breeze is going to challenge you all over the field. So they're going to stretch the field horizontally, vertically. They they rely on their quick game to, to start off, I think, to basically slow down the pass rush and really nullify it. So they run a wide scope of, of plays, and it's almost too much, I'm sure. And you need a veteran quarterback like Breeze to do it. But they're going to challenge every part of the Giants' offense. So it's defense, I should say. So it's not like, you know, the fact that Eli Apple is out is bad. But I would say too, they're going to hit. They're going to find ways to hit Ogletree. They're going to find ways to hit. Um, you know, they're going to find ways to, to go after Riley. They're going to find ways to go after Jenkins. Um, the again, the, the the bonuses. There's only two real main guys that can gain separation, and they don't have a great speed option. Deep. Right. Ginn is good, but he's not great. And so I think that it, basically, I'm saying if this team had Brandon Cooks like they did just a little over a year ago. They're really unstoppable. I think that there are there, there are ways to stop them or there is hope to stop them um, You know, if you, if you take away those two playmakers. And I do think they have to find a way to get pressure. And I think that means blitzing. I think it's probably going to be zone blitzing uh, by rushing five. Yeah, I mean, this offense is scoring the second most points in the NFL without Brandon Cooks. Can you imagine Brandon Cooks and Kamara in the same offense with Drew Brees and Sean Payton? I'm happy the Giants don't have to deal with that. But flipping it to the other side of the ball real quick, Pat Shermer actually in the same interview with Mike Francesa pinpointed Cameron Jordan, the uh, Saints' left defensive end, is basically the biggest issue. And he's going to match up against Chad Wheeler. What a start for Chad Wheeler. His first game, he's told the night before the game, you're starting, buddy. And guess what? You're going up against J.J. Watt. The next game, he's told, you're starting, buddy, again. And guess what? You're going up against Cameron Jordan and – he, you know, Shermer was effusive in his praise of Cameron Jordan. Basically said he's one of the best defensive players in foot defensive ends in football and nobody knows about it, and nobody really says that. And I agree with that. I mean, Cam Jordan is extremely underrated, um, in my personal opinion. And I think that's that's you know, that's that's proven true when you watch when you watch him on film. Um, you can tell me if I'm wrong on that uh, later on, and I'm sure I'm sure I might be, but it's gonna be a tough matchup for Wheeler. And Shermer said it best. He said, I I take a little bit of blame myself for some of the plays we gave up uh, in pass protection with Wheeler because I have to find ways to get him in fewer one-on-one situations. Now, is that as easy as Shermer says it is? Is it just like that where you can say, okay, I say it's simple. I look at the tape. I need to give him more, you know, more help in the passing game. Or is when you do that, is it really, does it take away from what you want to do on offense by having to use an extra player or having to do the slide protections to the left and putting, you know, an Ellison one-on-one or something like that on an island? Is it, is it really as easy as Shermer's making it? I guess that's what I'd ask. No, I, I think I think it's a comment for the media, and I think it's a, a good coach being kind of taking responsibility for his player when you know he knows that it's a weakness, but he can't. He knows that he also has to have the player block one on one on some occasions. You know, we, we went over it a little bit, but empty personnel sets with no one in the backfield, you can use a tight end to chip, but the whole goal of empty is to get five receivers to flood zone or man, whatever the defense wants to choose, and give the quarterback options. That means a one on one on the outside. The Giants were six of six, right, uh, when they ran empty sets. Like, he played well enough there. So they have the confidence against a really good defensive end for, for most, for a few of those snaps, not all of those snaps well, were against Watt. Were against Watt. Um, but, again, for, for Jordan here, I think that it's not as – it's easy because Jordan doesn't move around the formation really at all. 
On the opposite side, it's Alex Okafor, who is also a very good athlete that I think Solder is going to have his hands full with, and and Davenport, the young raw rookie. When they bring him in, they kind of sub him in. Uh, they they rotate on the other side. Jordan, what's interesting is it's an interesting contrast. Watt is unbelievable at his get off and swim move. He's probably the best I've ever seen. Uh, Jordan is great at his his kind of bull to speed moves or speed to power. He can he. He, where Wheeler is going to have trouble is basically anchoring. Um, Wheeler has good get off. Wheeler, Wheeler is going to be in position. I don't know if it's going to matter on some of the snaps. So I almost think now that I'm thinking, my, I'm saying in my head, the running back chip may be the better angle than the tight end chip because getting um, it's not about slow. Like I said, it's not about slowing down Jordan's momentum at the get off. It's about somehow giving uh, Wheeler the superhuman play strength to stop one of the best defensive ends from basically two yards away from the quarterback. Yeah, and that makes sense, and that's something they'll, they'll, I think they'll actually adjust and do. Um, but in general, I thought that, and I know we didn't really get a chance to do this. We can't, again, we can't touch on every player, but I thought I really liked what I saw from Wheeler in his first game. Obviously, he had some trouble in one-on-one with Watt, but really the biggest difference between him and Flowers is that he finishes every run play, and he had two awesome run blocks. He had a play where he, early in the game uh, where he took down, uh, where he crashed down and took down one of the really pancake, blo- essentially blocked one of the, Saints, uh, I'm sorry, Texans defenders. Then he obviously had the block down on the Barkley touchdown run. He competes through every whistle, and that's something that you just need on this offensive line. And obviously, I thought Greco and obviously played a great game, and Omena had his best game. Um, before we move on to the questions from the fans, did you want to give any quick thoughts on the offensive line? Because I know there are a lot of fans who asked me about that in the mentions, and we didn't really do a full breakdown of that earlier. Uh, no, I think I think the overall the, the 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 play was a lot more elevated. Like we said, Omame had some really good blocks in both run and pass. I think just kind of sticking to with the way that the gear for the Saints team, it's a team that isn't bringing as much pressure as blitzing as much as they did last season. But they're going to have to be careful because Demario Davis rushes the passer very well from their five one nickel look, where they've got five defense the five uh, defensive guys in a diamond formation on the line of scrimmage, putting a lot of pressure on all five. Um, all five offensive linemen. So it's, it's going to be kind of a game that's going to test them, even though the saints are giving up a ton of points and all that. And, and basically their secondary is not having a good time at all um, in terms of covering guys. You know, I, I think that it is going to be tough there. And I'm glad you brought up Tamara Davis. Cause that's somebody who actually flashed to me when I, when I went back and watched some of the saints games this season, what a, I believe he was a former jet player, right? Yeah, yeah, and I hadn't, I hadn't, I wasn't that familiar, but yeah, no, maybe a little weak in some cover spots, but everywhere else, the guys all over the play, all over the field, a great addition for their for their linebacking group. Great addition, and what a what a terrible job by the Jets general manager to let a player like that get away on a roster that really flushed with salary cap space and not that much talent. Um, but but I digress. Um, before actually, one more thing, Nick, I want one more thing before we jump into the fan questions because. This is something I know you know. I know you have a better grasp on than me, and I want to learn more. What are, do you think, because you've done more uh, study on the Saints t- defense on tape, what to you, are, 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 and if you haven't, feel free to tell me, but what to you is the biggest reason why this secondary and this, or in general, the Saints pass defense is struggling so much? Is it the pressure or overall, or is it the sec- play of the secondary? Because I'm trying to get a grasp on how this team can go from one of the, you know, a very efficient pass defense last season the, one of the, if not the least efficient, uh, so far in 2018. Yeah, it's a great question. I was, you know, as I was kind of almost cramming a little bit for this podcast, trying to figure out how I wanted to frame this. It, you know, if you look at the games where they got smoked, it's all personnel matchups in the, all, it's all personnel in the secondary losing matchups to very good talent, and so you're seeing 
But again, you're not talking about the weaker parts of their secondary. You're talking about guys like Marshawn Lattimore, who's, you know, he was he was defensive player of the year last year, a rookie of the year, I forget. You know, he, he's highly, highly, like, really good player, and he's getting beat deep. He's getting beat on short routes. He's getting, you know, they're missing tackles. It's You're, you're seeing, though, to really answer your question, you're seeing um, last year when they played really well, Latimer and Crawley were able to lock down in man coverage or in boundary lock, which we explained poor before in previous podcasts. That's where the outside perimeter, outside zone, outside, um, excuse me, outside the numbers defender in the quarterback position, he's basically one-on-one in the, uh, in, on, on the wide receiver. Last year, that they were able to lock that down with very little, basically, completions. This year, it's the hole, and when it's a hole, it makes the defensive coordinator kind of tense up because he knows he can't call as many blitzes as he wants to. It literally restricts the playbook, in my opinion. And what you saw last year is when that was really good, uh, defensive coordinator there was able to expand the playbook. Now you're seeing this in the first the first couple of games. I really didn't see much pressure at all that was being brought, and and they were really a, a problem on the back end. The other side of it, and I'm not 100% up on it, is Ken Crawley's play has he is either gone down or he's injured because um, PJ Williams, the backup is getting more snaps and he's been beat deep. He yeah. is not his, his speed game. His play speed isn't that's play speed. His functional speed to cover speed deep is not there. And you're going to see the giants try deep over routes. You're going to see the giants, you know, try just straight fades too against him. He's going to be a target. Uh, so those two pieces, I think kind of make the rest of the puzzle not really work. Uh, for their defense and their, like I said, their pass pressure. The pass rush is good, but it's getting, it's improving, and it's not good enough uh, yet to really, to really kind of make up, make up that difference, in my opinion. Yeah, and you're seeing a lot of what basically I've seen, and also what you know the the, the guys at Pro Football Focus have seen. They have the Saints pass defense ranked, the pass coverage, I should say, ranked 30th in the NFL, and their two biggest culprits are PJ Williams and Ken Crowley, like you said, and Crowley's a guy who's been on my radar way before this because I do a matchup column or I used to do a matchup column. And I still write about for DFS on pro football focus. Uh, Cause I write about fantasy over there and he's a guy I was targeting a couple years ago, every week, pretty much in DFS, uh, his individual matchup. He's back to playing bad football. I mean, he's had, he's been targeted 18 times through three weeks. And like you said, he hasn't even played every snap. He's been losing stats to PJ Williams and he's allowed 14 receptions for 295 yards that's unbelievably bad. 14 receptions, 295 yards in three games, and he hasn't even played every snap. They tried P.J. Williams out, but P.J. Williams has allowed eight receptions on just nine targets. And again, that was 14 receptions on only 18 targets. He's allowed – Crawley had allowed 77.8% of passes uh, to be caught against him, and, and P.J. Williams 88.9%. And on those eight passes, 161 yards in coverage. That's Unbelievable to me looking at this again. That's almost 500 yards uh, receiving allowed by the both of them. So the Giants need to attack these two when they're on the field. And I think this is actually works in their favor that they're going to be probably forced into playing less 12 personnel with two tight ends and more 11 with three receivers. So I think that's the best way to attack this Saints defense, and that's for 11 personnel. Um, but on that note, we're gonna we're gonna switch it up a little bit and get to some questions from the fans. A lot fewer questions this week. Um, that's on me, guys. I expected us to record this Thursday. We wanted to do it a little early to test out, um, you know, how the reception is maybe a bit early in the week, and also because we had the all twenty-two film to work with. But next week, I will give a fair warning there. But we start with BFF four two six, who asks a first half Watson play where he avoided the right D end. That came inside, ran left, and completed a first down pass with a runner, mobile quarterback like Watson. Is that just something that happens, or should that be 
uh, or should the D end been more outside containing? So this, like I talked about earlier, I, I rewatched this play and, and, and really the coverage was awesome on the wide receiver. And then he just broke back towards the left after the route was designed for him to come on a quick in moving towards the right. So I think that, I mean, you could tell me is defensive end responsible for contain there, or is that kind of just a really good play by Watson? I think a few times it was a good play by Watson. I remember a couple of plays in the first half where maybe they were stunting. Um, and on the stunt side, it's sometimes difficult if it's a, if it's a tackle end stunt for the tackle to be able to, to then play contain. Uh, but, yeah, they, they were a little undisciplined in their rush lanes at times. It's what you see. It's what you see with, with pass rushers. They're trying to be basically more creative and, and move more and, and move as they go downhill. Uh, yeah, no, I think it's a combination of both. I think that, that, that specifically for this play, I, I'm sure it was someone's rushing lane. Uh, if it was the end of the tackle, I'm not sure, but yeah, no, it it happens, and it was just. I think the Giants are just kind of lucky that it didn't happen with you know as as aggressively as it could have. I don't think that again, not to really harp on the, the Texans game. I don't think my sense is they're not really comfortable with him running on that on that knee or leg, whatever it yeah, is. They, 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 yeah, they they didn't run zone read, and then yeah, he didn't really open up until the second half. It's like they didn't come out with. I thought they were gonna move around a lot more, and uh, so anyway, yeah, good question there for sure. And Subwoofer asks. Is it a big deal that OBJ hasn't scored a touchdown yet this season? The Giants, with all the weapons they have, haven't broken 30-point barrier. I'll answer real quick and throw it to you then, Nick. Um, I don't think it's a big deal at all. I've talked about why they haven't scored. I think it was a little bit game plan, uh, you know, scheme-specific in the second game, and they struggled. And then just first the Jaguars and Texans, they really just beat themselves too many times by getting too many early down penalties or sacks that put them behind the sticks. But when this – Offense is on schedule. They move the ball really well. And the touchdowns are going to come. They're really close. So to me, I'm saying it's not a big deal just yet. Yeah, I, I don't think it's a big deal. I think that the ball distribution to multiple players while keeping OBJ obviously in a high target number. But, you know, I think getting the ball to Latimer, getting the ball to Ingram when he's healthy, and understand he's not healthy now. But that that makes their – it makes it allows the multiple uh, patch number offense run better versus just having one guy basically drive everything. Exactly. Um, and then we have Subwoofer again. I'm um, answering two questions here because we didn't get that many, and also you're the man. He always comes to us with questions, and we appreciate that. So he asks me, hey, Dan, and he should have said, hey, Dan and Nick, but I'll give him a break. Question about Latimer. He seems to have decent hands to bring the football in. Should he be targeted more as OBJ draws the double coverage? For sure. Um, we've talked about this a touch, so apologize if I'm saying the same thing. But uh, on when when you I believe when the Giants when they love to run three by one sets so three receivers on one side of the field one receiver on the other the way Pat Shermer runs this offense is he's got a zone beater a zone coverage beater on one side of the field and he's got a man coverage beater on the other side of the field I think by far the best Giants receiver to to win one on one isolation routes is Latimer for the points you say his his ability to high point his good hands his ability to use his body on shorter routes and slants on hitches on comebacks. I don't know why they don't do it more because what this will do is take the double coverage is an interesting way to think of it. It's, it's just, it's how you manipulate the too high safety look. And if the single high safety is going to be anticipating going in both directions. And when you have a, a, a basically bona fide threats from both sides of the formation against both man or zone, it makes the defense, it makes it very, 
very hard to defend. And I made the comparison, I believe, on this podcast that it's kind of what Pittsburgh's offense looked like last year when Martavis Bryant and J.J. Uh, and, and uh, Juju Smith-Schuster were playing really well alongside of Brown. It made the whole thing click. And I think it's really important because that one lone wide receiver that the Giants love to have, he's got to be able to win in isolation. And that guy, is Latimer, is better than Ingram. And he's better than many of the other guys that they've had over there. Interesting. So I, I actually would have had a little bit of a different call there because I kind of liked how they spread the ball around. Uh, and I know he didn't get many targets last week, but that's something interesting to look, look, look forward to. And I know you're a big Latimer guy, Nick. Uh, <laughs> so, and, and hey, I, I can't say he's been bad or anything like that. So we'll see what happens there. Pay the line asks, in your assessment, why was the middle of the field again? Uh, why was the middle of the field open basically all day against the Texans? What can the Giants do to fix this against the Saints? Hmm. Yeah. I think when you run zone, here's the, what I would say, this is maybe a little bit of a specific Houston Texan answer. When you have guys like Deshaun, like um, DeAndre Hopkins and Will Fuller, who can beat you vertically, it's very hard in manner zone to not give them a proper cushion and proper means somewhere in some cases close to 10 yards. That means when they run in breaking routes, which is what they run a lot of. They don't have a very evolved offensive set, no offense to, to O'Brien. Um, you're going to give them 12 and 15-yard gains to not give away the big play. I think that's what the Giants were trying to do from a, again, man or zone. I think they were trying to contain and stay on top of routes versus trying to jump routes. This week, it's actually, I've never thought of this way. It's a great question. This may change this week because there's really – Again, besides Thomas, there's not many guys that can gain separation. So you may see a little bit – you may see guys in zones and guys in, mat, in, in in pattern match that are being a little bit more aggressive and trying to jump those underneath routes. So it's actually a good thing to watch. Um, but, yeah, I think that it was really just a – maybe just a, a, a Texan-specific thing there. Interesting. And that's something we'll keep an eye on this week because the match is very different. Obviously, Ted Ginn can be cheap, but um, obviously Cam Meredith, who's getting some more playing time now, the rookie Traquan Smith, Michael Thomas, those guys aren't as much burners as, um, why, or I'm sorry, Hopkins and 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 Fuller. So we'll see what happens there. And the last question we have before we dive into final score predictions is: Hefty Lefty asks us who has the better secondary as it stands after injuries, as they are right now. And that we're going to assume no Eli Apple, and we already know that uh, the Saints will be without Patrick Robinson. So is it the Giants or Saints, Nick? Hmm. <laughs> It's really weird. I think many people would obviously want to, obviously based upon last year, would, would easily say the Saints. I mean, playing right now, I think I think the Giants are playing very solid. I know there's a lot of kind of hate on, on Riley's angles, and I think he's playing very well for, for, for a basically young player in a tough position. And, you know, although he's not perfect, I think he's at a higher level. And to be honest, I think he's at a higher level than – than, uh, than the Saints free safety, um, who is, is Williams, right? Number 43. I remember his number. Uh, yeah, <laughs> been a long day. No, so I, I say the Giants. I say the Giants there despite Latimer being healthy. Yeah, um, I'm going to – it's really close to me because I think that, like we talked about for the Saints, P.J. Williams and Ken Crawley are easily the two worst players on the field for either secondary, um, but they're not always on the field at the same time. And, you know, really you can 
you may be able to say the same about BW Webb. I mean, he was. I'm not. I'm not a BW Webb guy, and I don't think I will be. But he, he you know, he competed hard. He's not. I like the guy. He's, he's a hard competitor. And then you look at the sec at the at the safeties, and like you said, that it's kind. Of, there's bigger names and better production last year for the Saints, but so far the Giants safeties, I think, have played safer football. I mean, Pat Shermer said it best. They asked him about Riley's angles and the overall safety play. He's like, listen, we've kept the big plays from happening. We've prevented – obviously, they gave up the Tavon Austin play. Besides from that, they kept big plays from happening down the field. So, yeah, and I, and I love what I've seen from Jamar Schenkins personally. So, I'm going to go with the Giants too and slightly edging the Saints. Um, but it's that time of the show. We're going to get the final score predictions. And I don't want to toot my own horn because it's really <laughs> hard to do this thing. But – if we did run Tate back from last week's podcast, you would hear that I predict the Giants would defeat the Texans 27 to 21. The final score was 27 to 22. Uh, hopefully, I don't know what I did on the last podcast. I know one thing I did, um, but and, and we'll get to that in a second that I won't, that I did differently from the last podcast. But I'm not. I, I'm not. I like Michael Scott said. I'm not superstitious, but I'm a little stitious. Um, so, <laughs> so I probably do the same thing this time. But as far as final score predictions go. I actually like the Giants to build on the momentum from last week. Um, I think this Saints team has major holes in the secondary. Uh, for starters, I think they're a much better team at home than on the road. That's been proven over time. I think the Giants match up pretty well against the Saints, to be honest. Just, I mean, just based on their last couple – the, the, the most recent matchup against the Saints, um, their home win, and then uh, dating back to the 2015 game uh, where it was a shootout. I think it will be a high-scoring game. I'm going to go with the Giants offense finally breaks out here and they win a close one, 38 to 35, a really high scoring game. I'm predicting. Um, we'll see if that holds up. What's your, what's your final prediction here, Nick? And will you be the first person, by the way, on this podcast in eight different individual instances we've had to not predict the Giants win? <laughs> so that's what yeah, I'm thinking about how, so I'm, I'm going to get to my prediction, but I'm going to give two different scenarios. Um, I will pick one. I think this is a huge game for Pat Shermer to see what he thinks about his football team because I'm wondering if he wants to stay with the – and he will stay with the the, the, the the run-to-pass ratio as close to basically 50-50 as he can. I'm just wondering if he even wants to go more so and keep it in a little bit of a slow match and so where it's like a 21-18 to 18 game with the Giants winning. I do think if it goes into a shootout, it becomes a race, like basically a horse race. I think that the Saints are going to win. So I do think that the Giants are going to win 21 to 18. And people may say, why are you saying take the under? What are you saying? The one thing I don't like about the one chink in the armor with the Saints, I don't love the red zone offense. They sometimes, uh, Peyton, like overthinks himself. They bring in Taysom Hill, they're running zone read. They're doing all the things that they didn't do to get them there. And I do think that the Giants, I think Giants and Betcher and their red zone D will shine this week. I think they went 21 to 18. Okay, interesting. So it's a little bit different of of an of an outcome score wise, but the same same the same overall takeaway. Um, and hopefully the Giants can do it and get back to two and two. And on that note, we are going to sign off from this podcast. If you notice, there was something I said at the end of every podcast the first two weeks that I did not say last week, and I will not mention it again this week. Uh, you know, uh, like I said, a little stitious. So on that note, I'm going to say uh, thanks for tuning in, and we'll talk to you guys next.
Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.